Hi, I'm Chitra. I'm Madhvi. I'm Jyoti. I'm Patmaja. Together we are your hosts on the Edge podcast. We bring you stories and experiences from our experiments around learning, marketing and design. These are stories of people, technology and people interacting through technology of what we see, create and recommend. A candid conversation is always a joy to be part of. It was so with our guest this week on the Edge podcast, Sneha Lakshman, an instructional designer. So folks, this episode of the Edge podcast, where we told you we'd be bringing you stories about learning, marketing and design, this one's about learning. In the voice of our guest, who found her way into the realm of instructional design from many careers, she talks about what she feels are key to becoming an effective instructional designer from absolutely making sure that you've understood requirements to perspectives from the learners and designers' points of view, to sharing how learning has changed from in-classroom to remote to hybrid learning. My colleague and co-host Madhvi Nadik was intently listening to us and she had her questions for Sneha, which brought out an interesting perspective around social learning from this part of the conversation. Listen on. So Sneha, a very warm welcome to you on the Edge podcast. I've been... I've been looking forward to this conversation, as has been the case with me. I'm always intrigued by people who've landed in the profession of being instructional designers. But before we get to that, could you, for the benefit of our guests, introduce yourself? Okay, I'm Sneha. Full name, Sneha Lakshman. And uh, I have been a professional for the last 23 years. And uh, the professions have varied greatly. I have been an instructional designer for the past 11 plus years before which I was a technical writer and that's how I got started in this whole content development topic. I currently work for a multinational company and that's the only place I've been an instructional designer and that's been for 11 and a half years now, a little less than that. And I've learned on the job, I've been very fortunate to have excellent mentors. I, I'm not saying that to say I've learned a lot from them and I'm too good. But whatever I am today is because uh, they had the patience to to teach everything to a beginner like me. That was 11 years ago. Thanks, Neha. That's interesting. And we'll come back to more questions on instructional design and how you got there. How about you describing your origin story for our listeners? Did you always envision to be a technical writer or an instructional designer? Or what got you to be one? Or how did you reach there? Okay, I, I didn't even know instructional design exists as a profession. I have had several careers in the past and the last one before I started on anything related to documentation was uh, I was serving in the Indian Army. I retired as a captain and uh, in my last year of service... Uh, if I may interrupt you, it's an honor to be in conversation with the ex-service person. My deepest, deepest thank you for being of service to this nation. It's been an honor talking to you or rather it is an honor talking it to you. Is it is an honor to have served, I will say that. But that happened long back in the, I got married in the last year of my service and I wanted to, I, I was married to a civilian, so I wanted to quit army, I wanted to come here and uh, start my family life. I was looking for something a little more 
domestic and uh, I fumbled upon technical writing and the company was very close to my house and that's how I got started on content writing. And uh, I started at the very bottom when they asked me to write a paragraph in my uh, interview as part of the selection. I wanted to highlight something and I, I really didn't know much about writing. Uh, I'd only written letters on paper, not even emails much. So at that point, I just searched all the kinds of uh, things that are available in MS Word. And I actually, I, I wish I'd saved that. I had highlighted something with twinkles. And I thought that was very smart of me. And they said, this is a professional piece of writing. And do you think that's appropriate? And I explained to them why I thought that was appropriate. So that was where I started. I wouldn't even know how to use bold or italics to, to draw attention to something. So that was in 2006. So, so since then, you've I have learned my bold and italics. <laughs> That's a nice way of uh, putting it, Sneha. In fact, I wanted to ask you, what was it that kind of got you a little stumped when you, when you first probably gave the interview to be a technical writer? Because I would think that for somebody who has been in the armed services, and forgive me if this is an assumption of mine, where you know one is called upon to quickly assess situations, take charge, and uh, you know take action that follows on and and that I believe you're pretty much trained to do that once you're in the armed services. I think my first question is what was that transition like and second question is were you able to apply some learnings from your experiences in the armed forces towards uh, what you did as part as a, of a of technical writing? Definitely you're right you we're all in different ways whether you're in the army or elsewhere we're all trained to assess and address the requirements mm. and uh, that was actually surprising in my interview as well in my selection process because they gave me a list of things to do and it was a totally new tool the frame maker uh, 9.0 probably then I don't remember so they gave me a tool and they said in this tool you have to author this mm. that was an unknown tool so you assess what is the requirement and you go into the tool you look for the things and you do it it did not seem to me like a challenge and i was surprised that is what stopped me actually that this would be a test i would have thought this is what a child does now a digital native child first time instagram you don't need to teach them how to do stuff right so in that sense i've always maintained that whether it was technical writing and more so instructional designing. It's all about addressing the requirements. Once you have your requirements right, which is the toughest part, it's easy from there. And this is the training we've had regardless of any of our past careers. So I don't know whether I bring something specifically from my army career into these two uh, lines of work. But I know that as a person, I would have changed, and I'm sure that reflects some in some ways that I'm not very aware of. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when you, you know, you said you've had multiple careers. How many careers have you had, actually? I don't have a count, but I started, maybe I can count now. I started as, uh, my first one was a telemarketing person for Chola Sheraton in 
in Chennai. That was when I was still studying. And the second was teaching. I was a school teacher for 11th grade chemistry. And then I got an opportunity to be a researcher of uh, plant biotechnology in CFTRI, Central Food Technological Research Institute, Mysore. So these were all kind of related. No, I, I shouldn't say that. Telemarketing was completely different, but teaching and the research kind of went hand in hand. And while I had just been accepted, not even a month into my research, I got an opportunity to interview for the army. And the whole selection procedure went through it. That's how it started. So I should say telemarketing, teaching, uh, research, army life, and then technical writing, and now uh, instructional designing. Wow. That is uh, some very multifaceted career, I would say. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> and uh, it really picks my curiosity because at uh, Adeptic, we're all about learning mm. and specifically learning for adults. Mm. It's very different from how you learn as a child or perhaps even as a college student. Mm. And so my question to you is the transitions between all of these careers, I'm sure involved some degree of learning, some degree of acclimatization, if I may say so. What were some of your challenges that you faced in course of learning new things for your new job? And uh, what did you find yourself doing to overcome those challenges? I think the biggest challenge, Chitra, I'm answering this because you've asked me to reflect. And this is the first time I'm thinking back on that. My biggest challenge was very surprisingly adapting to the research life in all these career shifts I've had because it did not go well with who I am. I'm a very people's person. And uh, the more I forced myself to sit at libraries, research, it, it takes a lot of self-work before you can actually do something. So you, you research a lot, and that was pre-this Google era. So they have an excellent library. Sitting in that library, sitting for days on end, hour upon hour, inside research labs, just reading, just understanding things, that was the toughest part for me because that was not who I was. And uh, I, I would love to learn from people, not from books. And everywhere else, I got that opportunity to learn from people at every other career shift. So that was more fun. The challenge is when you're trying to force yourself to do something that is not aligned with who you are, I feel. So I would say my biggest challenge was trying to f fit into research. That was not me. Although I love the subject. I, I was passionate about biochemistry, but somehow I was a very bad researcher. <laughs> okay. So would you say it was somewhat of a pursuit to find something that you enjoy doing, something that you can relate? I'm still on that pursuit. Sorry ah. to cut you there. <laughs> okay. Because I'm still on that pursuit and uh, I, I feel like there's so much more different things I want to try. I'm trying to zero in on the right next thing. What did you learn prominently as a technical writer? Clarity. I thought that was my biggest learning. Clarity while being succinct is not easy and like I said, I've it's not happened on one day, right, that I realized that the biggest thing in this profession is understanding requirements. That, again, is the biggest learning I've had, that you got to spend a lot of time understanding requirements. 
if you know what you have to do, then you'll figure out how to do it. But if you've gotten that wrong, the requirements wrong, then it's fumble, 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 fumble all, all the way. So I think my biggest learning is about knowing that requirements is the biggest thing and then addressing that with clarity and precision. Nice. And how did you then move on to becoming an instructional designer? How did this come to be? You said you didn't know anything about instructional design and uh, that you took up technical writing for whatever reasons. How did you transition into becoming an instructional designer? Although it is definitely not coming through in this conversation, I thought I had a flair for words. My comfort zone was words. That's how I picked up technical writing to begin with. But I'm not a technical person at all. I mean, I, I was trying to figure out things that I really did not understand and that made me heavily reliant on my SMEs, the subject matter experts. And along the way I learned that something a little less technical is instructional design, especially because I got accepted into the uh, headquarters where the content was definitely not so technical. I was not aligned with a specific business unit that dealt with cloud, that dealt with data analysis. I was part of this corporate headquarters. Yeah, so that's how the transition happened, that I, w I was looking for something a little less technical, but still in the world of words. And uh, instructional designer, I had an instructional designer friend, and uh, she said, you want to try this? And when I tried it, it seemed like, oh, this is easy. This I can do. This is not so different from technical writing. So I felt like this was my comfort zone from day one. So then how would you describe the job of an instructional designer in your own words, based on your experience? I hate to sound like a broken record, but again, I will go back to understanding requirements. So the job of an instructional designer, I think, starts there. Needs gathering. Figure out what the need is, not what the client wants. Mm. What does the situation need? You can't have a person who's failing in the field, let's say, an engineer who's not doing well. And many engineers in the company are not doing well on the field. And then you bring them into a classroom and try to tell them how to do things. And then you send them back on the field. They'll probably do the same, th same mistakes. Probably what they needed was not that training. Probably what they needed was a ready reckoner in their hands. Just one PDF printout, probably. Mm -hmm. So that's where needs analysis comes in. If the client comes up and says, I want a training, a three-hour training for my engineers, and uh, in the training, I want you to pump this much into them. They should, when they walk out of the training, they should know this, this, this. Now, that is what the client is saying. The client wants that, but the need is different. The need is for a ready reckoner that they can carry onto the field, that they can refer and get the job done. So the job of an instructional designer starts there. First understand the need of the situation and then understand what are the circumstances around which this training has to happen. So before you go there, if I may interrupt you a bit here, is how do you as an instructional designer get to those needs? Because very often the person or the persons with whom you're having a conversation with are about the requirements aren't necessarily the consumers of what you're going to design. Definitely. And it is the toughest part of the job because design and development is easy thereafter. But uh, you deal with clients most often who think they know what they want and they, want, they just want you to do it. So if you start asking them questions, they are irritated. They don't have the time. 
they don't want to deal with you they just want you to do something for them but uh, if you want real results then you got to face those kinds of clients and keep asking why why are we doing this what do you want them to do what do you want your learners to do or my learners your teammates whoever what do you want them to be able to do when they finish this training you keep asking questions in different ways till you can get an answer to this why are we creating this learning what are the performance objectives not the learning objectives learning objectives are you should in this class we will learn a b c that is not the, the that is not the real that doesn't get you results right so if you want results then you got to be that irritant for your client <laughs> and keep asking that those questions till you get the answers you are satisfied with because if you are going to develop that course then you need to know what you are doing and you will be happy with output only if you have understood the requirements well first so how how do you typically i mean once you've had the requirements in place and then you feel you have a good understanding of what the learner persona has to accomplish ultimately what do you do what does a day in your life look like it's not always that exciting you know it's not always needs gathering most often it is design and development but after needs gathering comes the whole conversation about okay so i understand this is the requirement what can we create that addresses this requirement that's when you move into the design phase you you gather more and more data about so should this be something that they do in a workshop should this be something that they are taught should this be something that they can learn in their own time so that will determine whether you have a workshop based learning you have a self paced learning you have an instructor based learning so that is where you get into the details of now you have have the needs let's try and figure out what will work best to address those needs and then you design for it okay so you've got the performance objectives we think what will suit this requirement best is a workshop so now let us talk about what are the things they should be able to do at the end of the workshop so what will the workshop itself have do we need external instructors who will come and uh, teach them and then they do it themselves or do we just you know let them lose and try and figure things out themselves what will be the best way for them to learn you discuss that you put a design in place you present it to your clients and you get their buy in and uh, then you develop it i think you just articulated uh, multiple modes of learning and uh, for some people some modes work well for some people there are other modes that work well so in your experience of uh, you know 10 plus years as an instructional designer what have you seen work well for learners in terms of the modes of learning can i take the liberty of moving away from corporate learning to answer this question sure corporate learning is a different beast i i call it a beast because sometimes you have these uh, mandatory learnings hmm. whether you learn something or not you should get to that completion of that learning it is mandated by government by rules and yeah. regulations governance whatever so that is a different kind of learning and i don't want to talk about that because everybody knows how that happens you just sure. next 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 and you get the certificate you show it to your manager you're done yeah. and you do it every year <laughs> typically so that's not the kind of learning there's not much learning learning that happens there so that's why i don't want to talk much about it when you're talking about other kinds of learning 
you got to understand why that person is learning if i am teaching my mother how to use whatsapp that's not real learning too yeah i would do it very differently in that scenario as against teaching somebody else to create an instance in the cloud or whatever so you got to understand why is that person learning it for my mother it's probably to send exchange messages with her grandchildren so she has a drive to learn it there's nobody holding a knife to her neck and saying you got to do this but when it comes to corporate learning there's a knife without a knife being there because if you don't learn this how is it going to impact what you're doing mm. they need to understand that and that should drive how they are learning what they should be able to do at the end of this they should be convinced about it if they are not convinced no amount of design development from our end will have any results i completely agree with you and you know having still i consider myself to be a learner and these are precisely the things that matter to me if i pick up this course or if i watch this particular video on a certain topic and typically i'm searching for something that helps me in, in the course of my daily work you know helps me become better at what i'm doing or helps me identify a different approach to doing things and that's what i'm looking at when i'm learning today i really don't have the time to go back and look at a textbook and concepts and you know how it typically is when it's part of a strict course curriculum if you know what i'm saying but yes i couldn't agree more with you yeah it's all about what drives that person to learn but that is difficult in corporate learning because you you're not teaching one person and you cannot customize your learning for a person or even a persona you've got to keep in mind that there are going to be all different kinds of learners and you've got to create a learning that pareto rule right the 80 20 at least 80% of the people should walk out with some value from that learning and that's why corporate learning designing for corporate learning is not as gratifying as teaching like my mother to learn whatsapp now when there's a smooth exchange of pictures and voice messages between a grandmother and a grandchild it gives you a sense of yes she's able to do it that kind of gratification you will never have you will hardly ever have when you're doing corporate uh, learning design so it's it, it's in some sense yet uh, you know part of what employees want from corporates is is support in their career and learning upskilling is is very much a part of it at least that's what we see via employee service and uh, what is it that employees are expecting from the workplace because they spend so much time there so what would you say as an instructional designer are you know some of the challenges that you have in terms of making learning an enjoyable and an impactful experience for corporate learners i'll take the impactful because enjoyable is not what i'm aiming for when i design and uh, just to say why i don't take i don't want to concentrate on enjoyable is when i cook for my kids i am not a good cook i can only cook for my family to survive i'm that kind of a cook but when i cook i want them to get the right nutrition and in the right times at the right hours and in the right quantity that's my focus if you ask them whether they love my cooking they going to say no because i make <laughs> them eat vegetables and not burgers okay so where would they rate me as a cook bottom okay 
But where would I rate myself as a mother because of my cooking is somewhere on top. So when I design for my learners, perfectly okay for me to add a lot of fun into the learning. But does that always translate into impact on the ground? No. There are so many uh, even live sessions, classroom sessions where you've had a ton of fun. The facilitator was awesome, the content was good, but you walk out, you feel like, what did I learn from this? It was a lot of fun. You look at the NPS course, the net promoter scores by which we assess how happy the learners are or are they likely to recommend this learning to somebody else. You typically take that before they exit the room. And they're all gung-ho about the experience they've had. They'll rate you very high. Your NPS score will be very high. But six months later, you go back to them and see how much of that learning they've applied on the ground. That is the real assessment of how good your design was. And you'll sadly see that not many fun sessions translate into impact on ground. So that's why I, I move that enjoyable learning question aside and I'll concentrate on impact. And we typically tend to have most impact when we cater to what drives the learner. For example, it, if it is that I have to have achieved this level of, in this learning to move to my next promoted level in my career, then uh, that just becomes a badge they want to show, up, show off on LinkedIn. I've created those kinds of learnings as well because that is also part of corporate life. They have to have achieved this level before they can be considered for their next promotion. But the kind that is most impactful is where you've taught them a skill, you've taught, taught them a concept that they can take back and apply on ground and you see that happening and that is what gives you most joy and you've got to think about how you can make that impact and uh, it might not be a mass uh, learning it might be a handful like like I just took the example of workshops maybe you need and workshops cannot be mass learning it'll be a handful of uh, people you'll probably have more of the breakout sessions where you can deal with smaller groups you'll probably have smaller sessions but more frequent ones that is the kind of thinking a designer will have when they're thinking about how can i make the most impact in fact one question that i want to pose here is you know given the paucity of attention spans these days and the fact that there is so much out there for especially a person in the corporate place to even be aware of sometimes it can be quite overwhelming for people. So in some sense, I would say that if I was working in a corporate and if, if I knew I had to know certain things, I would actually make a priority list of what's most important and only start focusing on that. And from that what's important, I will just take away what is enough for me at this point in time to be effective. Do you see a lot of that kind of thing happening? If, if that's the way you work, Chitra, you're a very smart worker. <laughs> and I think not many people out there are like, like that. So where I was actually coming from was uh, when, uh, you know, we looked at a couple of surveys in terms of completion rates for MOOCs. They hover somewhere between 3 to 5%. This is what uh, came through when we also surveyed a set of people and said, what is it that's really you know, bugging you. It's not that people don't want to learn. In fact, most of them enjoy learning. They find 
the shortage of time given that they have project deliverables on hand and they're also saying that there's so much out there that i need to know i absolutely have to prioritize so it's also part of what we heard okay and therefore as an organization that does a lot of learning design ourselves we have this challenge in front of us is that how can we make learning impactful in the available time for the learner you know should it be micro learning bits should it be a combination of uh, classroom combined with reinforcement learning what is it that we can permute and combine through different modes of learning to make it impactful for the learner that's the question there yeah that's a very real struggle because most people in the corporate world are really tasked to achieve some targets and they are hard pressed for time as it is and uh, finding time for learning is really difficult and most often our learners do this outside of the working hours that's very sad because they just don't have enough time within the working hours although the company says learning is priority all of you should have these many hours at least of uh, learning but there is only 24 hours in a day and there is life beyond work as well so sadly uh, many learners end up taking learning especially the self paced learning I, i picked that up because you said books they end up doing it in their own time and uh, i also get your question on volume because there is a lot out there on any given subject but when you talk about corporate learning it's like i am doing well in my job this is how typically it happens uh, there are two kinds of people I, i'll use a very broad division two kinds of people people who are doing well people who are not doing well people who are not doing well it's very easy to say oh you probably need to scale up on this skill whether it is hardcore uh, content skill or soft skills you can point them in that direction and sell them off or the other kind of people where they're doing well but usually these are the kinds of people who are also ambitious and they want to do better they want to do more they want to do different things so there is a sense of awareness about what is their immediate requirement some people tune into that awareness and those people really do well if you I'm, i'm sure you've heard about the whole growth mindset thing where they're open to learning and they're aware that okay to make my next move to speak to this client i'm not even talking about promotion here tomorrow i'm meeting with this client and this client engages in this industry so i need to ramp up on this industry knowledge i'm taking a random example here so then they know what they want to learn what they have to learn and picking up learning today is a lot easier because you have ratings you have people the number of people who've completed you can see that in most uh, moocs how many people have rated how many uh, this course as how well so that in sense in in a sense becomes some sort of a motivating factor for the learner as well which is what you alluded to earlier in the conversation is uh, what really drives effective and impactful learning is the learner's motivation as well definitely that is i think if there has to be real impact on ground that is mandatory where that motivation comes from whether it comes from the manager or it is from inside or from other external sources that is not so important as much as i want to do this or i have to do this by tomorrow so which is the shortest route that will get me there that kind of and it doesn't matter if you're not an expert in that even an awareness of what all is there in that in that subject 
is sometimes good enough to get you past that, oh, tomorrow I'm meeting with this client uh, and I need to know something about this industry. You don't need to know the depth of that client's industry. That, yeah. that he will know better if, <laughs> if that client has been there in that industry for years. You can never compete with that kind of on-the-job expertise. But at least you can have an intelligent conversation with that person. So I would say even when there's paucity of time and there's a plethora of learning that's available, a smart learner picks up what needs to be done, prioritizes that, and maybe it's something that if, if it's a certification that will take three months, then take three months. If it's something for the next client meeting, take tonight to do it. That kind of a learning happens. So while we've looked at it from the learner perspective, what would you say instructional designers need to pick from what we just spoke in terms of uh, when you design learning, keeping all these parameters in mind, what do you think an ID should actually incorporate while they are designing learning programs? Since not always, you can't create a single learning that will uh, address all these needs. Today I'm working on a learning that will probably help this guy who has a client meeting tomorrow. Maybe my next project will be about creating a certification course that the next learner, she might want a certificate, a three-month training and then a certificate out of it. So in the corporate environment, I don't get to pick and choose what kind of projects I will work on. Uh, but you've got to play with whatever you're handed in. The, like I said, you, you first analyze what is the kind of learning you need to create. Are you creating a learning for this guy who has a client meeting tomorrow or for that lady who, who wants a certificate at the end of three months? So you see what the current project involves and you address that. In corporate learning, you don't get to choose your projects. Yeah, I'm just curious given your experience and because this is something that we are also experimenting with. You talked about workshops and having small groups of people working together. How much of social learning is part of this in a corporate setting? Um, uh, just to make sure I got the question right, you're saying social learning in, in terms of peer learning or... Okay. Or what other ways were you thinking of? I was thinking more uh, social learning could also mean you, you found something, you put it up on LinkedIn or you put it up on social media and people pick it up from there. Oh, I don't mean social media learning. I, yeah. I'm talking about more social learning where this group of people who did this workshop or program together, how much are they learning through peer interaction and how much of it is direct instructor to student? It's... I would say it is a drastically improved result if you're put in a peer group and uh, you have you having opportunities to interact with your peer group. You learn a lot more rather than learning from. I won't even say a facilitator. Even if you have multiple facilitators, even if you have a panel discussion, where the number of people who know the answers are more than the number of people who are seeking answers, it is still less as compared to when you're put into situations where you are working as a team and learning as a team. The only downside to that is it takes time. And uh, for corporate situations, it is not always possible. Uh, the budgets don't allow that, time doesn't allow, the infrastructure, everything that goes into bringing those people together, that is not always available easily. So this kind of learning is usually saved for something that seems 
lot more important or something that is more for execs or leaders or unless there is a high value attached to that piece of learning sadly we don't see that kind of learning happening a lot in corporate scenarios what kind of infrastructure do you think is needed to support something like this there's nothing that is as good as having everybody in the room okay yeah, given yeah. that is really hard for various reasons okay. even the pandemic whatever uh, what what else is happening can they do this uh, online can they do this yeah, remotely yeah they can do it online and it happens online as well we have online workshops i've designed them i've been part of them but you can't uh, do away with the fact that when you are doing something on a mural board uh, you you've seen that yeah board right when you when everybody's on the mural board you're also contributing there's a ping from your boss there's a ping from your client there's a mail that says urgent and it's that you cannot override even if you tell them you close your uh, chat they're always going to be on an alert and they're always going to be distracted by things you cannot control so that's the biggest downside of not having them inside the room and having them globally distributed or whatever in their own places but not together and you all, all i've also had scenarios where it's a let's say one and a half hour workshop and i tell them one and a half hours keep your cameras on stay here with me stay with me Sorry. and um, then they'll say i have a 15 minute client call let the team proceed i'll be right back the team with that person and the team without that person are two different teams okay so even a 10 minute step out and come back will impact the team's learning and that's not ideal but then we don't live in an ideal world so yeah so what you're sharing is more about uh, social learning and the uh, limitations in like a live class or a live workshop setting do you think there's scope for this beyond the workshop do you think it's valuable beyond the workshop where you the facilitator may still not even be in the picture yeah we've had those kind of designed those kinds of learnings as well where you have um, a setting a, a platform you go you learn something then you get a question you answer the question you submit it a peer reviews it and without you reviewing any one other or two other peers you cannot move forward that's the kind of structure of the program so you get to review other people's answers and your answer gets reviewed by others that kind of learning also helps if you think that's social learning what we found in this kind of setting is people just put anything in to make progress and uh, when you're talking about peers reviewing others answers they're all kind of on the same level so you don't get an expert guidance these are the downsides but there are lots of situations where you're happy to work with these kind of dynamics and say that's still okay we will work even if this learning works well for 60% of my learners i will still go ahead if 40% is just blabbering their way out typing a asdf whatever into the text boxes just so that they can make progress i will live with that 40% there's also another kind of social learning where you earn you do stuff in the uh, platform in your own pace and uh, you unlock as you go and if you unlocked enough you earn a seat at the table and in that session then you get to interact with your peers it's it's so a only a session. subset comes into that let's say yes only a subset comes and i'm assuming it will be a subset that has 
cleared all these stages, so they are a little more driven. You can weed out a few not so driven learners that way. And let's say at the end of each month, every last Wednesday, there will be this session where a subject matter expert will be there, the peers who've made it in that month to, to that point will be there, and that kind of learning you will have in that kind of setting. This is not like completely self-paced as you, can, as you can see. This is a blended learning where you do a little self-paced and then you earn a seat at a table. So all these kinds of tricks we've been trying, some work, sometimes, some the same stuff doesn't work sometimes. Awesome, thank you for sharing that. And last question to you, what kind of programs do you personally enjoy designing? Do you have a preference? Yeah, I prefer workshops. <laughs> I prefer right. workshops. The biggest downside of everything I, I create is all too often, I, we are not subject matter experts. We need to invite someone in. And if they are good, they don't have time for us. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> yeah, that's the biggest downside. Because they're out there doing stuff. And this is a kind of give back that... They sometimes want to do, but they can't afford to do. So I love uh, designing workshops, and especially if you can get them into a room and being a fly on the wall when those workshops run. Because as a designer, you're not always there when it is happening, right? That's the kind of experience I thoroughly enjoy. Thank you so much for that. Most welcome. I was just curious, Sneha. So with that, uh, Sneha, what would you like to leave as few lessons or pieces of advice for people who would perhaps consider a career in instructional design? I'm not sure I am well equipped to advise, but I will just say what I learned. Uh, and if somebody can use that in their field of work, then good. I think one big thing I've learned at the cost of sounding my age is to be patient with myself. That did not come easily. I'm probably still struggling with that. But if I had that, I think I would have been a better learner. And it helps to let you learn, to let yourself learn at your own pace. You can't force things into, before the bus comes, I should finish this. <laughs> that kind of learning is, is tough. So you've got to be patient. There are, there's always going to be things we don't know. And there's never going to be a point where we can look back and say, oh, I, I learned it all. So that patience, that learning happens and it, it accrues. It's a cumulative thing. It, it doesn't happen in one shot. And it doesn't happen because of one, one course or one piece of writing that you read or one video you watched, whatever. So be patient and uh, eventually you'll get to a place at least where you can, you can sound intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I think, the biggest learning I have from all these years. And the second is, I've never been the kind of person who's shy of asking questions. I don't understand, I will ask. I still don't understand, I will still ask. Third time, I will hesitate to ask, but if it's important, then I will still ask. Because if I'm not able to understand something, how will I convince my learners of it? It's very, very, very important that we are convinced about what we are learning. And until we are convinced, we need to keep asking why we are doing what we are doing and how can we do it best. And all the answers are out there. There is nothing that is not out there. We just need to search for those answers. And that's why questions are very, very important. Thank you, Sneha. I think, you know, the, the thread that you kept throughout the conversation 
it keeps coming back to make sure you've understood the requirements. Yeah. Make sure you've got to the needs of the person and it came out so beautifully towards the end. It sort of ties in this conversation very nicely and uh, I want to say thank you for being a guest on the Edge podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I've had an opportunity to reflect on uh, whatever you're asking. I don't know if I've ever spent the time to do that. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. subscribe to the edge podcast on your favorite podcast channel we are on google itunes spotify stitcher and more if you like this episode please share it with your friends if you have stories to share and want to be featured on our podcast write to us at podcasts at adepticlabs.com